Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. The disciples in Mark's Gospel struggle to understand the Bible because they refuse to surrender their ideas to it. They approach Jesus with preconceived notions of God, His Kingdom, and His Messiah that break down whenever Jesus speaks or takes action. The same is true of us. We approach Mark's Gospel with our ideas of its meaning and its symbols only to flounder when our idols are smashed against the brick wall of the text. For example, what does the commandment, Suffer the little children to come unto me and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of God, actually mean? I'm willing to bet that you think you know exactly what it means. And that's why you still don't get it. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verses 13 to 16. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 178 of the Bible as Literature podcast. There's nothing like reading the text and paying attention to it and nitpicking details and disagreeing and being hit over the head with grammar and trying to resolve a question And that's exactly what Dr. Benton and I did this morning. We come with different views of the text, and it's always nice to have somebody else that I can work with who has a different point of view of the text, and we can test each other's ideas to see exactly where we land. And it brings out interesting ways of interpretation. You know, a lot of times in our society, everyone has their point of view. I used to always challenge my students to have more than one point of view, because when you only have one point of view, everyone else's point of view is stupid. It's very simple. So I like it when you have two points of view. You say, okay, here's my point of view, but here's another point of view that makes sense, but I tend to favor my point of view. Then I think we can have a rational discussion, but it's so rare that I hear rational discussions because no one is even interested in listening to what the other side has to say. Now, I've heard listeners say, Father Mark, it's amazing how you and Richard always agree on everything. Well, we don't always agree, but the one thing we do agree on is that we are not interested in ideology, We are not interested in trying to find out what is correct according to some system of thought. We are interested in what the data says. And that's important because the difference between two talking heads on CNN and two people trying to deal with the text is that if I can show Richard evidence or he can show me evidence, 99% of the time, one of us will yield on the basis of data because we're not defending our ideas or opinions or our identities. We are scientists. We are interested in what the text says. In the news, you have eight talking heads on the screen all talking at the same time. The problem is each one of those heads is their own reference point. You don't have a single set of data that they're all discussing. 
put that on the screen. Here's the data we're discussing today. At my house, when Mormons come by or Jehovah's Witnesses come by, I invite them in, we have a snack, and they start talking about their beliefs. I say, hold on a second. And I go and I get a Bible. I open the Bible, the Greek, the Hebrew. And I say, okay, say what you said one more time. Let's look at what it says. Because whether they're Mormon or Jehovah's Witness and whatever I am doesn't matter because we're all under the same scripture. So let's open the scripture and start talking. But let's talk about the scripture. I don't want to know your point of view so that you hear my point of view. It's not that. Let's read the scripture. And I had a very interesting discussion with some Jehovah's Witnesses at one point talking about our different understanding of the end times. But it was talking about a text, not the end times. This is what I think about the end times. Once you go down that path and you begin referring to your understanding of the end times from your formation, we are now dealing with Hellenistic philosophy. You have constructed an idol and you are referring to the idol which is floating around in your head. When we do the podcast, we are constantly smashing our own idols against the brick wall of the text. The text is our reference. I cannot stress this enough. And this morning, we're going to take four short verses and demonstrate the power of grammar and the power of context. If you pay attention to the broader context in the story and you analyze the grammar, you will find that in many cases, your assumptions based on what you've heard or based on your conflation of different gospel texts, right? Each gospel text is different. The teaching is universal. The teaching is the same, but the application of the teaching is different in each situation because they are tackling a different problem with the same teaching. So on the one hand, if you know Mark, you know Matthew. On the other hand, just because you know Mark doesn't mean you understand what Matthew is dealing with. And there's something to be learned in understanding not just what Matthew is saying that he shares in common with Mark, but how that thing in common is applied in many and various ways. This is how you become a pastor, by learning from the pastors who handed this text to the church. We have four Gospels because there is a dialogue that happens among them. And when you read that way, it forces you to read in a deeper way. And that's what I think is so important for our listeners is to read very carefully. This is a skill that's developed over your entire lifetime. As you keep reading and keep reading, keep reading, here's a challenge for you. Read Mark through five times in a row. Then read Matthew. And then you'll start to notice how Matthew is different from Mark. That doesn't mean that they're contradictory, that they're illogical, because some people would malign the Bible and say, oh, see all the contradictions, there's no way that it could be true. No, if you go to a scientific conference, two scientists discussing the same set of data, one's going to be saying, no, this is what it means. The other one is going to say, no, this is what it means. And they argue it out. And that's how they come to a deeper understanding of what the data mean. Think of it this way. You have a couple getting divorced, you have siblings who are fighting, and you have someone at work who is trying to get someone fired. So you have three situations. The first two share more in common, siblings fighting, husband and wife fighting. The third one is different because one person has power potentially or is trying to gain power in order to undermine a second person. If we were to write a letter to the people who find themselves in each of these situations, the teaching is the same. You have to lose, you have to submit, you have to give up. 
you have to decrease so that God can increase. Stop asserting your ego. Why are you imposing your agenda? That's the teaching. But the way you address a couple struggling in their marriage and the way you address someone who is engaged in cruelty and manipulation and abuse at work, it's going to be different. The situation is different. The need is different. But as Chrysostom said, you have one implement for all diseases when you are a doctor of scripture. So please understand that these two statements are not in contradiction with each other. If you've read one book of scripture, you understand scripture, but you can't understand scripture until you read all of it, because then you'll realize what the one book is saying, and every book is saying the same thing, but every book is different. Now, if you're a systematic thinker, you'll never get that because you want everything buttoned down like the ruler and the rich young man. But nothing is buttoned down in scripture except you. You're being buttoned down by the text. And they brought young children to him that he should touch them. And his disciples rebuked those that brought them. This is already the second time that Jesus discusses children in Mark. So that's something I don't want lost on the listeners because remember there were two episodes where he shared the loaves of bread with many people and we talked about how significant it was to have the same thing happen twice. Here significantly in the previous chapter in chapter 9 Jesus told them that you have to receive children in his name. Now they brought young children and his disciples rebuked those that brought them. Wait a second disciples were you listening last chapter because jesus said explicitly you have to receive these children this has always been a problem for the disciples we've seen since chapter one the crowds come to jesus and the disciples are trying to get jesus away from the crowds get him into a house hide him away stay away maybe we need to send away these people because there's not enough food for them the disciples are always trying to protect jesus instead of letting Jesus go and be spread out among others. And we see this happening within our churches too. You know, we're so afraid of what the outside unbelievers might do to us that we set up our walls and we set up a strong bastion against the powers of the world. Whereas Jesus says, no, 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 you receive them, receive them, receive them. Let them come so I can touch them. What's critical here is that Jesus explicitly said, you have to receive children, namely the powerless in my name. When you receive the powerless, you don't just receive me. In fact, he says, you don't receive me. You receive my dad who sits on the throne in the kingdom. And again, as you said, in verse 13, the disciples almost immediately are completely betraying Jesus's instruction. But when Jesus saw it, he was much displeased and said to them, Suffer the little children to come unto me, and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of God. Now, people get confused about this verse. They misunderstand it. They start talking once again about the innocence of children and how children can't sin. But this is a very self-righteous interpretation. Because it means you still believe in your own purity, or at least the possibility of your own purity. You believe that it is your purity that makes the kingdom possible, but your purity is your power. And Jesus is pointedly 
trying to undermine your power. A child's value is not their innocence in God's eyes. A child's value is their powerlessness because they don't push back against the commandment. And the kingdom of God is the commandment of God. It is the instruction of God. And so a child isn't going to resist the kingdom. That's why the kingdom of God is like a child. For of such is the kingdom of God. If you want to know what the kingdom of Caesar or the kingdom of Rome looks like, we do the same thing today. We have the blue angels that come to show what the kingdom of the United States looks like. North Korea puts on parades to show what the power of the kingdom of North Korea looks like. We know what kingdoms look like. There's only one parade. The only difference is how do they march? You always have soldiers, you have guns, you have weapons, and this is how you show your strength. And Roman soldiers are the same thing. They didn't have F-16s to make a lot of noise, and so they used to beat on their shields with their swords. You make a lot of noise, you scare people. You cause them fear because of violence and strength. The kingdom of God is the opposite because it deflates itself. And this is not weakness. This is its power. That's the thing that people don't understand. They want the church to be strong. They want it to be tough. They want their own churchy processions. They want their own churchy strength. And they want to become a paramilitary. The problem is not that the military belongs to the state. The problem is that it's a military. It shows strength in the way that God does not show strength. God defeated the entire army of the single superpower of Egypt without a single weapon, without a sword. But lest you become self-righteous, if you happen to be a pacifist listening, and you forget how much you depend on the police officer on your block, remember that while it's wrong for you to take the sword, if someone takes the sword against you, it's the will of God. That's how the kingdom of God is manifest. And Paul says, very clearly in Romans, that the state wields the sword for a purpose. Now for Paul, it's a play on words because he could say that about any power that you face. So really hear this carefully. It is putting you down. You are the one who is powerless. In verse 14, he says, the kingdom of God is of such, meaning not that kids all go to heaven, the way I've heard people interpret this for as long as I've been around. That's not what this text is saying. It's not about that. It's saying that if you want to understand the kingdom of God and you want to see it, look for the people who have no power and receive them. To be of a kingdom means you're a citizen of that kingdom. It means that you represent that kingdom. Or embody that. They embody that. French people have certain characteristics. Germans have characteristics. Chinese people have certain characteristics. People who belong to the kingdom of God have certain characteristics. And the thing that is characteristic of the citizens of the kingdom of God is they are subject to the will of the Father and his law. A child can't help but be because he doesn't have a say. He doesn't have a will. He doesn't have a voice. He can't speak a word. All he can do is accept the word and carry it out. Now, in context and based on the grammar, which is what we argued about earlier today, you can see how verse 15 is not saying what people usually think it's saying. Verily I say unto you, whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, he shall not enter therein. Normally people read this, you have to be like a child or you won't go to heaven. But that doesn't fit the context, and you explained from the grammar this morning, Richard, that the grammar 
is ambiguous. Right. So it says, whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child. Okay, what does this mean? It can either mean that you have to be like a little child when you receive the kingdom of God, which is how many people understand it. But it can also mean whoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as if the kingdom of God is the little child. And so what we're saying is it's the second. You have to receive the child as if you're receiving the kingdom of God. The child and the kingdom of God share a similar characteristic. Just as before in chapter 9, whosoever shall receive one of such children in my name receiveth me. Meaning, receiving a child, you receive Jesus. Jesus brings this teaching. Jesus is the exemplary citizen of the kingdom of God. So, you can't accept Jesus and reject a child. It doesn't make sense. He's reinforcing the lesson he gave in verse 37. He's reinforcing it against the disciples, saying, you didn't get it. You can't accept me and reject the child. It doesn't make sense. Because if you're accepting me and rejecting the child, you're still thinking I'm going to overturn this government with a sword. You still think the kingdom of God is going to be an actual chariot that's going to go run over Caesar's chariot. But please don't hear Jesus talking about children and do what people do on Facebook and go, oh, isn't that nice? No, that's not what's going on. To understand this text, you have to think about a child who's powerless and gets on your nerves. A child whose personality rubs you wrong. Because then suddenly you understand what's at stake. Because not only does this child have no power, but the child is at risk of being abused by adults or mistreated. And that is exactly what's going on when the disciples don't accept the child. And that's why the lesson of the millstone is ominous here. You have to receive the weak. You have to. If you can't receive the weak as a manifestation of the kingdom, you will not recognize your king on the cross. This is why Jesus doesn't want them to talk about the resurrection. Because right now, if he was crucified, they wouldn't recognize him. They would be embarrassed. They would say, oh, I guess he wasn't as great as we thought because they still had expectations. He was going to look like Caesar. You can't enter the kingdom until you're crucified. And if you can't recognize the kingdom on the cross, you're going to run from the cross. And then your death will be unto dust. It won't be a martyrdom. It will be a waste. It will be a squandered gift. And he took them up in his arms, put his hands upon them, and blessed them. This is not the way people, again, take it sentimentally. That's not what's going on. The blessing in scripture is a big deal. He is blessing them as the sons of Jacob. He is blessing them as members of Abraham's household. It's the blessing of the patriarch who establishes Abraham as our father. It's his father's blessing. Jesus took the ones whom the disciples rejected and blessed them. The blessing on the children was a judgment against the disciples. This is how blessings work sometimes. The one who gets blessed makes a point against the one who was not blessed. In order for the disciples to be blessed, they have to receive Jesus and his teaching. Not just Jesus and what they think he is or what they want him to be, but his teaching, because the teaching can't be separated, but still the disciples are not getting it. They don't want the teaching to spread. They don't want the children to annoy Jesus or to take up Jesus's valuable time. Jesus says, 
this is what I'm here for, and he blesses them. They're not a waste of time. They are the point of his mission. Verse 16 is a manifestation of the kingdom of God in Mark because you have Jesus surrounded by his court. When Jesus is surrounded by the little children, it's his expectation of the heads of the 12 tribes. This is what it's supposed to look like. But because you can't accept them and put yourself under them, you can't become a part of them with me. You can't enter into this with me. And you will never enter into it until you make yourself small. Thanks very much, Dr. Ben. Thank you very much, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.